great to see you. It is, uh, we're in a series thinking about uh, our mission as a church and in particular how God wants to create us and set us free to be generous human beings from the inside out. And uh, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, you've missed uh, Pete Nichols' little update on our finances. Um, we're not going to do that again, um, but suffice it to say, our church takes money to run. But this series is not primarily about meeting a funding deficit in our church, though if that happened, hey, that'd be cool. Um, because the church is about, it's, it's about something way more profound than an organization or an institution. It's about our hearts. It's about the kinds of people we are from the inside out. Now, for sure, it takes infrastructure and money to support that kind of growth. But God is, God is interested in our hearts more than anything else. And we see this so powerfully and clearly when it comes to the matter of contentment. And we're not going to we're going to cycle around this and finish off with a few principles around generosity and wealth. But nothing fights or reveals the state of our heart than thinking about how content or at peace we are at the inside with our lives. And, and contentment is not an easy thing, isn't, is it? I mean, how many... Um, I mean, even as, as Janet and I over there were talking about that question, you go, the question itself, where do people find contentment, raises all sorts of other questions, doesn't it? Like, what is contentment? Do people even value it? Um, and, and you can be content in one area of your life and massively discontented in another area of your life. And, and what do you do with that? And another way of putting it is part of you is content and part of you isn't. Uh, life is, you know, and, and then, well, where do we find contentment? Well, you won't find it in things, though we often are tempted to think that, aren't we? Like, if I, if I have this thing, then all strivings will cease and I can be, I'll be content if I've just got, what? A bit more money, a bit less, a, a few, few, a few fewer health problems if I just lost those COVID kilos and then some, if I just had a more emotionally satisfying job, if my kids just moved out of home, I, whatever it might be. We, we think these things will do it, but the problem is mm, none of them really do that. I'll, I'll tell you, but, and, and that's interesting. So, um, and... And money and generosity and contentment go together profoundly, don't they? Because until you're content with what you have from the inside out, you're not going to be a generous person. Because you're all, at the core, you're always going to be trying to fill whatever deficit you have. And that's going to work directly against the impulse towards generosity. So uh, let's have a little bit of a think about uh, some principles. We talked um, uh, about growing generous lives. We talked about nine principles. 
Uh, we've done the first five, and if you missed those, they're online, um, where you can find all good podcasts, including our uh, website, um, and you could listen to those. Um, you can go on Circle, and all the the texts are there, and and everything. Today we're going to look. We're going to pick up here, and uh, that's not is easily. Oh, I can read that. Okay, so principle six: um, wealth is dangerous. Okay, wealth is dangerous, and uh, and this is um, this is a great topic to speak about here in Roselle. And of course, you might immediately say, "But hang on, I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy." Well, actually, reality check: you are. Uh, even somebody living on unemployment benefits in Australia, as relatively poor and hard up as they would be in our culture, would still be have a level of wealth and security that would have been unimaginable 200 years ago. If you think about uh, access to healthcare and travel and information, unimaginable 200 years ago. We're so, so wealthy. The fact that here in Australia, none of us is one failed crop away from starvation. You know, we're not going to starve. I mean, that makes us one of the richest uh, cohorts of human beings who have ever lived anywhere in the world. We've, we've developed the capacity to create and uh, store surplus capital in all kinds of ways. It's nothing short of miraculous. I mean, I, I actually think our, our society, our culture is, is, an, is one of the greatest miracles and acts of God that you can imagine. The, the wealth that we have created. But it's it's dangerous. And the, Bible, and the Bible addressed this issue even to people who were fundamentally subsistence farmers uh, in a, who had so much less than us, who literally lived one failed crop away from starvation. The spiritual principle is true. Wealth is dangerous, whether you are objectively wealthy in a society or whether you're at the bottom of that society. Uh, four subpoints: Love of money is lethal. Money is addictive, are three points, and wealth breeds arrogance, pride, or hubris. Uh, look at this from 1 Timothy 6. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men and women into ruin and destruction. I mean, how you just, how, the longer you live, the more you see this worked out time and time. And time again, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not that money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money, at one level, is simply a means of exchange. At another level, it's animated by spiritual forces. But the love of money. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Um, so why preach a sermon series like this, which is guaranteed to be unpopular? Because it is. I mean, it's much easier to preach sermons that tell everybody that if you follow Jesus, you're going to be rich and happy, right? That, 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 those are really popular. Um, how to succeed in life. And, but to say, hang on, listen, wealth is, is dangerous. The love of money is really dangerous. And I want to warn you about that. Not because I know the state of your heart, because I don't. But we've got to guard against that. And in our parenting... Word to the parents, you want to shape your kids' hearts so that they don't love money. 
They love God more. They love other people more. And that's hard. So um, I, I find myself in this really interesting predicament now as a parent of, of kids going through university where Margot and I have made choices, career choices with our lives that have not prioritized money, um, which you know we're happy to live with. But it's interesting when I think about how I want to shape and steer my children, the temptation is to, is to steer them towards vocational choices that will be very well remunerated. And that just shows how, how shallow my discipleship really is, that I'm not sure I can trust God for my kids. I can trust God for me. I'll be fine. But, but geez, how are they ever going to get a house in Sydney, right? So, so they'd better get a well-paid job. And you go, no, no, actually, spiritually, that's dangerous. It's dangerous because what, I'm commu what I can communicate to my kids is, is love money, trust money. Worship. That's terrible. It's a terrible failing on my part. Um, uh, so uh, love of money is lethal. Um, Proverbs, this is a good one. I, I remember talking, there's a... There's a family in my life who um, grew up in a context of enormous, of very great wealth, and have spent their lives shedding their wealth by serving the poor. And this has been a verse I first heard um, from the sort of the patriarch of the family. So third generation inherited wealth, and God had changed his life. And, uh, and I remember 20 years ago talking with him, and he said, this is, um, this is how I want to live. So this is from somebody who had objectively a very large amount of money. Give, keep falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Oh! Whew. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. It was fascinating. And then I've watched this guy over the last 25 years give away the majority of his uh, family capital in order to guard his heart and to live a spiritually rich life. You go, oh, my goodness. You go, wow. That's amazing. So, you know, because the, the spiritual temptation, now most of us, well, the spiritual temptation is if you've got money, you think you don't need God. And if you don't have money, you, you're desperate and you do stuff that's really uh, dishonest and gets you into all sorts of strife. So it's, a, it's an issue, right? So there we go. Uh, second point, and here's the thing that goes right to the contentment piece. Money is addictive. And this is a, you know, Ecclesiastes, this is a 3,000-year-old bit of wisdom and I'm sure you know it. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his or her income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. You ask people, you ask anyone how much, if I asked you today after church, and I said, hey, how much money do you, do you think you need to live on uh, for the next couple of years or next year? How much would you like? Most of us would answer just a little bit more, wouldn't you? That, that would be my answer. If I'm honest, uh, and I've thought about this a lot over many, many years, reflexively, I always, because I can always think of 
If I just had a little bit more. But it's addictive, right? It's so addictive. And you, you don't even realize how addictive it is. And our, our whole culture, our economy is designed to feed and enable that addiction, isn't it? Um, that's, that's powerful. And it's dangerous. Like any addiction, it's very, very dangerous. And then the other thing that wealth does, which we heard in this uh, text that uh, Sonia read, wealth breeds arrogance and pride and hubris. Um, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, I will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So, I command you, I command you, with the authority of the New Testament, to because you are rich in this present age, I command you not to be arrogant. Don't be proud. Don't put your hope in your money. I mean, I now, and I say that just I'm just reading out the Bible, and that's hard, right? That's a hard word for myself. It's a hard word for you. You go, ah, oh, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God, not your money. And I'll tell you one of the signs of pride. Sometimes you go, well, I'm not proud. Well, there's the there's the sense that, and I get this that. Um, my, my, my wealth gives me, feeds the sense that I don't really need God much. You know, I've sort of got life figured out. And haven't most of us got most of life figured out? I mean, we're here, right? You've got to be pretty high-functioning to show up and choose to be in a place like this. You know, you've mostly, I suspect, all managed to, you know, you had a roof over your head last night and you showered and you've got clothes on and whatever medications you need, you're taking to enable you to function this morning. We're, we're, you know, so we can go, I don't, I just, God, I dash a bit of God, I sprinkle a bit of God on top of my life because mostly I've got it under control. And, and... The Bible says, don't, don't relate to God like that. You desperately, and I desperately need God. I need to put my hope in him because everything can be gone just like that. Just like that. You're only like three minutes away from dying of a heart attack. You know that, don't you? And we don't have a defibrillator here. But Anne's just done her first aid upgrade, so we could do staying alive, staying alive. Ah, ah, ah. And it might or might not work. And we've got a couple of doctors, but it's, that's all it takes, right? This little muscle inside of you to stop working. And then you're done. Bang. How much good is your wealth then? So, uh, I worry. I worry about us, uh, Christians in the wealthy West. I worry a great deal about the spiritual maturity and health. There's a great deal of arrogance and pride and hubris. Because we're so successful in so many ways, 
There's data to show yeah, in the, um, this movement we're part of, natural church development world. They've worked with you know, 90,000 churches around the world now. And, and there's, there's a trend in churches like ours in the developed Western world that the older we get, the longer we are Christians, the less spiritually mature we are and the less passionately engaged with God we are. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you're, if you're new, newish to the faith, you might think, how is that even possible? That's, that's outrageous. But if you've been at it for a while, it's inter- and it's around the world, in, in, our, in our rich Western world, it's, there's something about long-term church membership that is not translating to increased connection with God, passion for God, love of God, hope in God, trust in God. And I think, and as I look at my own heart, I think some of it at least is I just put my hope in my accomplishments and my money and my technology and my superannuation. And I just, I make a whole bunch of choices over 20 years. They're little choices, they're not big choices, but actually all those choices accumulate to actually rob me of my spiritual passion because at the heart of spiritual passion there has to be a deep Trust in God, not in my wealth. I, wor- I worry about us. I worry about my own soul. Uh, and, and of course, the problem with that is it's very dangerous because we're not living the life that truly is life. Isn't that an interesting phrase? You see, we think, um, uh, you know, we, we sit on a ferry going to Manly and we watch the rich, beautiful people in their super yachts going by, and you think, that's the life. Imagine living that life. Or you're in, you know, row 63E on a 14-hour flight to London, and, and, and you, you know that up at the pointy end of the plane, there are some people in first class, and you go, oh, that'd be the life. Except they're the ones who hit the ground first if it crashes, so you'll outlive them. Just remember that. That's how I was. That's right. They're going to die first if we go headlong into the ground. So there we go. I'll get an extra half a second. Um, and we think that's the life that is life. And Paul says, and the Bible says, and God says to us, actually, the life that is truly life is a life of humble, contented dependence on God. That's the life. And we've got, to, we've got to fight against the tendency to see the world the way um, our dealer. So think of all of our marketing, all of our consumer culture as just one, dry, one giant uh, addiction-enabling drug dealer. <laughs> feeding us dopamine hits, feeding us the illusion of life if we consume this product. And you see the world that way and go, no, they're not selling me life. It's like if, you've, if you speak to an addict, uh, someone who's an alcoholic, for example, until they get into recovery, they can't imagine what life without alcohol would be like, like giving up alcohol. I remember talking to a guy who was addicted to pornography. He could not, he was terrified because he thought without porn and the regular dopamine hit, and excitement of pornography, his life would just feel empty. 
And because that's the line, I'm like, but of course, once you get free of those addictions, you go, the life that really is life is a life that is sober, a life that is free of, uh, you know, porn addiction, so you can actually love an in real life person. And so it is, the life that really is life spiritually is a life that is free of money addiction, of hubris, of pride, of arrogance, and it is free to actually live a life of deep dependence on God, it seems to me. Okay, so uh, that's encouraging, isn't it? Principle seven. Uh, giving, so you go, well, how do I free myself from that? Well, giving is the antidote to greed. Um, giving is the antidote to greed. Giving our time away, our money away, our energy away is the same as an alcoholic putting down the drink. It's the same as the porn addict cutting off their internet access. It's the same as the gambling addict cutting up their credit cards and not going to the pokies. It's what it is. It's like it breaks the power. Um, and, it's, and, and it's hard in the same way to actually give. I don't know about you. Um, I, uh, I find giving out of my excess easy. But I find actually a lifestyle of generosity, that's hard. Like actually, giving is hard. There's a bit of me that goes, oh, man, if I give, I'm going to be poorer. Who wants to be poorer? <laughs> that sucks. I want to be richer. <laughs> I'm sure you don't think that I'm such a venal, pathetic Christian because I'm paid to be religious and have it all together. But that's the truth in our hearts, right? It's hard. It's, it's, but there's no gain in being godly but greedy. I love this text. It's one of the most profound things. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Look at that. But it does seem, therefore, what's the opposite of contentment? Greed. Greed. Like, and greed can be not just about money. We can be greedy for health. We can be greedy for approval. We can be greedy for uh, sexual gratification. We can be greedy for possessions. We can, you know, we can be greedy for fame or status or acceptance or love. All those things that rob us of contentment. It's greed is the exact opposite of contentment. So it seems spiritually, and, and, I, and this sort of does my head in because part of me wants to say you can't be godly and greedy, but it seems like you can, at least for a time. It seems, according to this text, like it's possible for you and me to, to be godly outwardly, maybe, but still be greedy and not content. And the problem with that is what? There's no gain in it. I mean, this is the paradox. Like, the Bible is so profound. Think about it. What, the, what you and I are most inclined to do as Christians in the rich West or as religious people in the rich West we are most inclined to continue to be greedy for stuff and ask God to baptize or anoint or endorse our lifestyle choices and actually just make us happier and healthier and at peace, okay? And that'll work for a time. And maybe you and I are doing that even this morning. Uh, and Paul says in this text, well, there's no gain in that. Because you know what? You've got all your reward already. If you just want to get money, you'll get money. Like most of us around here, we're smart, educated, live in a great functioning economy with a rule of law, blah, blah, blah. You set out to make money. Chances are 
you'll get it. If you want fame, you might get it. If you want love, you can probably get it. If you, you, know, you can get that stuff. But is that really life that is life? Is that real gain? And Paul goes, no, no, there's no gain in that. Because you brought nothing in, you're going to take nothing with you, so live for great gain. That's the, uh, that's the plan. So um, there's no gain in godliness with greed. Now, I'm done. I, um, I hope, and I'm not sure that I'm succeeding in this, and I may not be. This is not me as a censorious, paternalistic adult smacking you over the head from a position of moral and spiritual superiority. This is just another human being who feels the force of all of this with great, like greatly, and says, let's have a conversation about this, and let's move, let's try and live this way, and it's hard, but it's good. So I don't, I, if, and I may not be doing this well enough, but that's what I'm trying to do. So then it says, don't rob God by not giving. It seems to be that you can, you can actually rob God of stuff. Um, Jesus tells the story, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. And then he tells this wonderful parable of a rich man who produced a good crop. He thinks, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, but God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. <laughs> ah. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? I mean, how is your barn building going? And, and, and what does it mean to be rich towards God? Like, that's really interesting. Fascinating. Oh, gee. Jesus is so comforting and just wants to endorse our affluence and wealth. Don't rob God by not giving. Here's Malachi 3. Will a man rob God? God says to his people, yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Jeez, what do you make of that, eh? Well, visit a small group, get into a discussion after church and try and figure out how do you live that out. What does that mean for us today? It's how you do application with really difficult passages, you throw it back on everyone else and say, what do we think about that? Because <laughs> that's an interesting one, right? Like, you, have you thought about how much of God's money you're keeping? Principle eight, God prospers us to raise our standard of giving, not our standard of living. Um, and then I put a red sports car up there. 
just to mess with our heads. I always find it funny who buy, people who buy sports cars in our part of town where you get stuck in traffic at 40 kilometers an hour and you're going over speed humps and through potholes relentlessly. It's very funny. A friend of mine years ago in Melbourne bought a beautiful, very, very expensive high-end Porsche and he was very embarrassed about it because he was claimed to be a Christian. Um, and he sort of hit it, but then one day we were catching up for coffee and he'd forgotten that he'd driven that car to work, so he came to pick me up in his very expensive Porsche in Hawthorne and we were going out for lunch down uh, Bridge Road, Richmond, and so we sat in this car that can do like 300 kilometers an hour going over speed humps through Hawthorne and then sitting at 20 kilometers an hour down Bridge Road, Richmond, and I thought, why didn't you bring the Range Rover? Is what, much more comfortable. Interesting. Uh, God prospers us to raise our standard of giving, not our standard of living. God, you see, God calls believers from every socioeconomic strata. Like, it's okay. You, you're called to follow Jesus from where you are. And sometimes that'll be from places of great wealth. And sometimes you might become very wealthy. Uh, and, and as we looked at last week, uh, even the ability to create wealth is a gift from God. The question to ask yourself is, and this might be a first world rich Christian cop-out, and tell me if you think I am diluting the radical message of discipleship here. The question is, what is the gap between how we could live and how we freely choose to live? Okay, so in, in this strata of living, here we are. Okay, so most of us, we're living in pretty affluent part of the world. As a result of your faith, you could live in a lifestyle from here to here. Our natural inclination is always to want to live at the top end of what we can afford compared to our peers, right? So, so we're living in Belmain, right? So maybe, maybe you're not going to spend $20 million on a house, um, but maybe, maybe, you, maybe you've spent two and you'd really love to be in that $4 million house, or that $5 million house. You know, the bank will probably lend you that amount of money. Uh, who knows, right? Um, the question is, do you choose to go, no, I'm going to live in a $1.5 million apartment and, uh, and shrink my lifestyle so that I can be generous with the rest? Now, if you were in Vaucluse and, or Point Piper, and you know, are you in a $50 million house or a $30 million house? And how do you, if you're at that level of wealth and, and you come become a follower of Jesus there, well, okay, what do you do with that? Well, maybe... Maybe you leave Scotland Island and go to Liverpool. Oh, no, hang on, that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> sorry. Maybe, maybe you leave Point Piper and you go to Liverpool and you, you scale back dramatically, but maybe you just, maybe you live in a $10 million house, not a $50 million house. And that seems absurd, and maybe it's a complete cop-out, but for me it seems like a healthy question to ask myself. What's the gap between what I could live and what I am living and for some, and that's, and by the way, this is a question of complete luxury. Like for many people, all I'm trying to do is pay the bills and live from week to week and month to month, even in, even in Australia. I get it. So I'm speaking to those of us who have choice and agency around disposable income. And then what do we do with that gap? Right? Uh, and then lastly, here we go. Our giving should reflect God's agenda. Well, what does that mean? Uh, there are three things we should fund. The needs of our family, for sure. We need to serve the poor, for sure. And we need to fund the ministry of the gospel, 
So what does that mean? Our families. And this is the first thing we all go to, and my mind goes to that, uh, coming from a long line of Jewish uh, people who fled the Holocaust and have lost money uh, numerous, numerous times over many generations, but have the strong idea that what you really need to do is establish some measure of family capital to pass on to your kids. That's a, to be a good person in my family, was to have a little bit of a buffer that you could hand on to your kids because you didn't know when the next pogrom uh, or persecution would happen. And ideally, if you could stash it away somewhere where people couldn't find it, that'd be even better, right? And so for me, when I read this, I go, oh, okay, well, you gotta look after your family. Okay, yes, you do. The Bible says that, do not, the Bible says if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Take care of your family. Most of us don't struggle with that. Do we? I, I think we get this. There are movements in the church who don't get this and often manipulative preachers who will encourage you not to do this. Give all your money to my cult. Forget your, your family. He said, no, no, don't do that. And there are, there are ascetic movements that sell all your money and give it to the poor and let your own kids starve. That's also dumb. Like, that's unbiblical. So look after your family. Be wise about that. But then care for the poor. Like, there are a lot of poor people in the world. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, and then you go, if you're like me, and most of you aren't, so God, that's probably a good thing. You go, well, how do I help the poor? What, what does it actually mean? Like if I give, you know, I, I have this view that there really aren't any poor people in Australia. Right? Or are there? Maybe there are. I give a, you give a lot of money to the poor, don't you? Through your taxes. We do that. Our taxes pay for hospitals and schools and our social safety net. That's phenomenal. So maybe that's all we should give. Or maybe not. What about the 40 million people who live in some form of modern-day slavery? Well, they're really poor. Maybe we should work, support. You know, so yeah, so then there's issues of how do we intelligently address people living in poverty. And as Christians, the wonderful thing, here's the thing. Christians over the last 2,000 years have been at the absolute forefront of poverty alleviation. Even today, people who claim to follow Jesus are substantially more generous financially than any other population group. Like we care about the poor, and we have, well, really for three and a half thousand years. And that's a good thing. Don't ever let you say, don't, don't ever believe the lie that Christians don't do much good. Hospitals, schools, uh, healthcare, labor reform, serving the poor around the world has been driven by Christians like you and me. And so, really, let's just keep on doing that. And then we should serve uh, people, the gospel ministry, in the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So we are the only ones who put money, who put money into enabling people to not have to earn a living day to day so they can spend all of their time helping others come to know Jesus. You see, most of us in this room have to go to work and spend 40 or 50 or 60 hours at work to earn money. Uh, and then what we do with that, in our, in our spare time, we can build community, we can share the gospel with people, we can pray, we can do church stuff. So what we've, how we organize ourselves is, is we put money into this church so that 
I don't have to go to work and earn money to pay the mortgage and feed the family, and I can spend the majority of my waking hours, uh, such as they are, and my energy such as it is, trying to serve this church and build this church yeah, through through my leadership and teaching so that we so that others come to know Jesus. Now we could choose not to do that. Like we could have another view and go, well, let's let's rethink our models of ministry and that's a, and we and maybe we could do that. And other churches do. But it's biblical and appropriate and that's why we pay Wendy and and Brian. We say, well, actually we want to free you up from doing this other stuff so that you can put like the majority of your life energy into helping people come to know Jesus. And that's a good thing to fund. It's an important thing to fund. No one else is going to pay for that, right? Um, you're all here because in some way people over many, many generations have paid for people to do this kind of ministry. That's how it works. So it's okay. Um, and, and that's simply what it is. So we give in these three things, gospel ministry, um, the poor, and our families. So there we go. Uh, and then, a, and then uh, there we go. I, I have no, nothing more to say. I'm done. I'm like...